Thank you, Pastor Brenda. Let me add my welcome to Pastor Brenda's Good Morning Church. It's good to be with you all today in person and online as we begin this new series, uh, Faith Redefined. I'm excited about this series and what God is going to do in and through it. So what is faith? Another word for faith would be trust. So if we put our faith in God, we're putting our trust in him And so we can enter into relationship. We believe he is who he says he is, right? And we trust that. So what does it mean to be faithful to him in our relationships with one another and our relationship with God, right? It's like you're honoring that relationship. You're prioritizing that relationship. You're seeking that relationship to be faithful. And so we're going to look at faith because faith, as we look at Scripture, to be faithful looks different depending on where you're at in the story. Just like your faith might look different, some of you might not yet have a faith. Some of you have had a faith that spans a long time. Your faith at the beginning of the journey probably looks different than it looks now. And so faith needs to be something that's not static. It needs to be growing. It needs to be changing. It needs to be adapting. And so we're going to, through this series, look at different pictures of faith as we journey through. Today, we're looking at covenant. Um, When I was um, in undergrad, I was at a Christian school, and people came from all different sort of Christian traditions and I certainly came from a, a particular, you know, conservative tradition. And we were in this environment where our views were being challenged of, of the faith. And, and what I saw with some folks was their whole belief structure was a little bit like a house of cards. It was, it was not very robust. And if you took one thing out that they questioned, the whole thing sort of crumbled for them. And so part of what we want to look at, what are some of those essentials of the faith throughout the years that we have, that we can hang on to. The other thing I want to look at is what is our foundation? If, if you have a strong foundation, it allows the building to sway, right? These tall buildings are built in a way that the wind blows them and they don't topple over because they're deeply rooted. If we have too rigid a faith that doesn't allow for change, it will break apart. It will fall apart because it isn't grounded in the things that really matter. And so we need to have a faith that is not static, but a faith that can be deeply rooted at the center pole. We have, you can't really see the center pole there, but there's a tall center pole in this tent. And we've used this image before at church of Christ being at the center. He's what it all hinges upon as believers. And so having Christ at the center allows us to have this coming back to, this recentering on who it is that Jesus is in our lives. Because if our faith gets stuck, if it becomes too rigid, it can be a little bit like the Pharisees. They've latched on to the way of doing their faith, and it didn't change. It didn't adapt. They they were so rigid that they actually missed Christ in their midst, even though they were trying to follow God faithfully. Or if our faith isn't hanging on to anything, we lose Jesus at the center and it can just be washed away. So in this series, we're going to to jump into kind of hard questions. We're going to jump into what are some of these foundational things and how can our faith adapt. We're going to finish with a time of, of, of questions and doubt and crisis. I know that my faith over the years has had to change based on my experiences based on who God was to me or what I thought who God was. 
And as my view of God expanded and changed, it provided space to question and doubt. And, you know, doubts are a good thing for us. In Scripture, we don't get a sinner's prayer, but we get a doubter's prayer. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And so we, we want to, you know, think of these as doubts. And as you journey through life, it's like putting it in a backpack. And if we don't look at our doubts, if we just try to shove them down and pretend they're not there, each time we pick up another doubt, it's like, oh, let me add that. I'm not sure how to quite answer that. We keep adding these to the point where it just becomes unbearable and it's no longer being held up by anything because it's too much. So I encourage people and I myself during the years as, as questions emerge, look at them, examine them, take them to people in your life group, take them to leaders, look at books and, and begin to examine, okay, where is this going? Can I find a good answer? Well, we might not always find great answers, but don't, left, don't leave the questions unquestioned because if we wrestle through it, we might be able to build upon our faith instead of have our faith be washed away. So that's my encouragement for you in this series. You guys on board for this? All right. Some of you are. <laughs> oh, I'm excited about this. And each week we're going to look at a different interpretive tool. Um, you know, Scripture is authoritative for our faith. But a wrong interpretation is not authoritative, right? So it's important that as we look at Scripture, we understand what it means. And one of the ways we need to do that is to recognize the Bible is written for us, but not to us. We are not the original audience for Scripture. It is written to a specific time, in a specific place, in a specific um, culture. And none of us were there, Right? So the first interpretive tool I want us to unpack is what did it mean to the original audience? See, our, our meaning for us today has to take into account what it meant to the original people who received this teaching or this letter or the gospel. We can think, we can just translate it in our minds because we all have an English translation or a Chinese translation. And so it seems more accessible and it's good that we each have our own Bibles, and we can read it in our language, but it can give us the impression that we can understand it as if it was written immediately to us. So we have to unpack the culture itself, and we'll do that as we go along um, into this series. Pastor Brenda will add us another tool for us next week. So we're looking at Exodus 34 today, and it'll be on the screen. And a little context here. We're God here is giving the people the Ten Commandments, but this is like round two. Um, we already had round one uh, back in Exodus 19. So this God who has been faithful to his people, he rescued them from Egypt. He took them out of bondage. He took them through the Red Sea. He's provided for them in the desert. Moses goes up to the mountain to get the commandments, and what do the people do? He's gone for a few days, and already they're like, oh, maybe God isn't so good after all, right? You know what would be better than a God who saved us? Let's make a golden calf. That is tangible, right? So Moses has gone a few days, and already the people are turning away from who God is and his covenant with them. 
So this is round two, and God comes to them in a much more personal way than the first round, but have that in context. The people have already, um, already walked away and been unfaithful, but God gives them another chance. Let's dive in here. Exodus 34, verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed this, his name, the Lord. And here the word is Yahweh in Hebrew. So we know from previous uh, sermon series that God was in the cloud. It was his presence with them that had been guiding them, that had been leading them. He goes on to verse 6, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord. So this is Yahweh, Yahweh, and it's, it says it twice to emphasize it. This is your dearest Yahweh. This is the God who loves you. This is who I am. And then he describes himself, the compassionate and gracious God. So he's compassionate, meaning that he genuinely cares for his people. He's gracious. He gives them what they do not deserve. He's slow to anger, meaning that when they um, behave in less than satisfactory ways, he, he doesn't just fly off the handle. He, he is patient with them. He is abounding in love and faithfulness. This abounding is this word hesed. It's this, this um, abundant love, this long-standing love, this, this I am with you through thick or thin. I will be faithful to you even if you are not faithful to me. Okay, so now we get to verse 7. And says this, maintaining love to thousands. So thousands here can also be read thousands of generations, okay? So imagine this line of generation after generation after generation. God is maintaining his love to the people, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. All right, as you look at that verse 7 there, any problems with that description of what God says he's going to do with the first part of it? We were unpacking this verse in the men's life group yesterday morning in our Mosaic life group, and as we were reading it, it's like, okay, wait, God is punishing up to three and four generations of people. Is that fair for things they haven't done wrong? That's a good question to ask. Is this the gracious God? Is this the compassionate God that we just read about? Because Moses doesn't seem to think these things are incompatible. So when we get questions like that, it's good to dig in and go, okay, what am I missing here? Is there something about the culture, the original audience, that I, that I don't know that's beyond my understanding? And so we can look at other cultures around them at the time, and we we can see that children are not valued in the same way they are today. We can also see that children bear responsibility for their parents, things like debts. If your parent died and they still had debt, the, parent could be, the child could be sold into servanthood or put into jail because of the debt of their parents. Not fair, but it's how cultures around them functioned at the time. So we see this um, dynamic happen. And that provides some insight, but let's dig into Scripture itself to see if Scripture provides other insight. So back in 
chapter 20 in Exodus, and the first time God is giving the Ten Commandments, he says the same thing, punished to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So you get this expanded view. It's not just that they're the kids or the grandkids. It's their heart has also been directed away from me. They actually hate me. They don't want covenant with me. They don't want relationships. And so there are consequences for that. But let's go a little bit further into Scripture to see this idea here. Is this what God is really intending for us to to understand? 2 Kings 14.6 says this, Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die of their own sin. Now, it looks like this is really saying a very different thing than the Exodus passage. It's saying you are responsible for your own choices in life. Your parents for their choices and you for your choices. We again get this message in Ezekiel 18.20. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. So if we just took the Exodus 34, we might walk away and think, wow, you know, God maybe isn't fair here, and, and maybe he's punishing people to the second and third and fourth generation, and maybe that's what's happening in my life as well. Maybe on some, um, in some generational curse, but this is why when we don't understand, when it doesn't make sense, we have to dig deeper. We have to ask questions. We have to ask the text because we actually see a very nuanced and different view than just reading Exodus 34. So let's spend a little time um, unpacking this because I think it's important. So... You're not punished for your parents' sin or your grandparents' sin, and yet there are consequences for it. Two very different things. So the people of Israel would have known the stories of Genesis. They would have known the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, right? And we see generational sin patterns in in that family, right? With Abraham, he lies about his wife, right? He lies about who she is. And we see Isaac doing the same thing. We see parents having a favorite child, and that doesn't end well. We see this especially with Jacob. Who does he favor? He favors Joseph. He gives Joseph a, a coat of many colors. So we can see this evil that is, is being passed on, not because of God's punishment, because of their seeing this behavior from parent to child to grandchild. We're in, when we're in these systems, those sins of our, of our fathers or our grandfathers are easy for us to commit because it's how we're growing up. So this evil visits Joseph. But this is, so Joseph is now the fourth generation. And do you remember, you know, God's faithfulness to a thousand generations, he has not forgot about Joseph, right? Joseph, you know, as a young man, he, you can tell he's been influenced by this dynamic of favoritism, and he's kind of annoying, right? He's a little bit arrogant. He kind of lords it in front of his brothers, not a very nice guy. And so his brothers are pissed, and they sell him into slavery, right? And Joseph has a very challenging life as he goes ahead. And you might know the story of Joseph. He becomes a ruler in Egypt, and he gets imprisoned, and he gets out of prison, and he becomes 
even more responsibility and he actually saves Egypt from the famine. And his brothers come because they, they think he's gone, they think he's dead, but, but Israel is in a famine too. So they come to Egypt to get bread, to get grain, to get supplies. And they have to see Joseph, and Joseph recognizes his brothers. Now, we've seen the evil that's gone from generation to generation, but then what happens in this story of Joseph near the end of Genesis? Evil is stopped. Joseph has an opportunity there to throw his brothers into prison, to, to, to basically treat them how they treated him, and yet he makes his own choice He says to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God worked out for good. He got to save his family. He got to make his own choice. He got to break that influence that he had from his father and from his grandfather. And that is good news, friends. We know that we're impacted by the families that we grow up in. I know that I am But God's not punishing me for those sins. But I recognize that I have got to press into those things that are more challenging because of the family that I grew up in. And you do as well. The message of Genesis and Exodus is saying that each generation and each person, they're accountable to God for themselves and their lives and their actions. God is not punishing you for the sins of your parents and your grandparents. We each get to be responsible before God ourselves. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't consequences, as we saw with Joseph, right? There are consequences for our sin. There are things that we've got to work through, but God gives us a clean start. We get to encounter God afresh. So this God who is compassionate and gracious and loving is a God that we get to have relationship with. So the passage moves on into um, Exodus 20, uh, 34, 10. And then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you before all your people. I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. So God is making a covenant. He's making an agreement with his people. Now, what I want to highlight is what, on what basis are these covenants made? What understanding did the people of Israel have? And we can look to other cultures to see, actually, that this was not a new thing. The technical word here that's used in the ancient Near East is a suzerain and vassal treaty, right? That's not an easy word to understand. I was trying to find different words for those, and there was nothing good. I'm like, I am stuck using those words. Um, So let me unpack them a bit. And and one of the books that I, I love on the Torah is The Lost World of the Torah by John Walton. He is a professor at the school I did my undergrad in, and he has an excellent way of digging into the culture Um, around um, the time of Israel to help us understand. So he uses this term here. And what does this mean? The suzerain would be, it could be a king. It it could be a god. Um, It could be the, the stronger, bigger nation. And it's making an agreement with the lesser person 
a lesser person of power, a lesser people. And so it's this agreement that you enter into with the vassal, right? And these verses in Exodus 34 are very common to what an agreement would have looked like in that time. So we see in these agreements that the suzerain promises to protect the vassal, right? The king promises to protect the people, if you will. So he, God is doing that. He will protect them. He will move them into the land. The suzerain will take care of the enemies of the vassal. And we see God doing that. But you have to be faithful to the suzerain. You have to be faithful to that king, not going after other kings, right, or other peoples like Israel, we know, already did. So the suzerain wants loyalty from their people. And if they aren't loyal, then they forfeit the land. Now, all of those things are in this agreement, in this covenant. And we see those things in actually many different covenants, agreements during that time. So we can see from culture that Israel would have understood, okay, this is what God requires of us. That makes sense. This is what you know, this country over here does. This is what this people do. We make sense of that. But God's covenant is also unique. We see things in this covenant that we don't see in other cultures. So those should sort of spark, what is that? What are these differences? The one is Yahweh is attaching his name to the people. It's not just Israel. They're the people of Yahweh. He's not just Yahweh. He's the God of Israel. So he is giving his name and he is taking a name. He is identifying with them as if he's adopting them as his own people. That's a risky thing. The people can misrepresent him, right? The people can ruin his reputation. It's a vulnerable thing to do to, to attach your name to this group, especially when we know this group has done a lot of bad things, haven't been faithful, but God doesn't pull back from that vulnerability or that generosity. He gives them his name. We see this in Exodus 6, 7. He says, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. This is risky to do, but he does it. And this is what that means. In Leviticus 19:2, we see this this verse, be holy as I am holy, right? And we can read that as God is calling them to holiness, which he is, but we can see it as something that they have to achieve. The problem with this translation, and it's probably the one that most of us know, is that word uh, be holy is, is it's not an imperative in the Hebrew. It's in the imperfect. And so it really is saying this, you are holy. God's people are holy because God is holy. He has made them holy because of who he is. He's not attaching them to self, something that is unholy. It doesn't mean they're perfect, right? We know that. He knows that. But he says their status as my people makes them holy. This is important for us to, to digest as we think about what does this mean for us today, we'll come back to that. Let's dig a little bit more into the Old Testament, this idea of Torah. Torah are the, the teachings of the Old Testament. So we get a lot of that in Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. 
And Torah in, in he, is a Hebrew word, and it means teaching. Now, some of you might think Torah means law. And, and the, the, why you probably think that is when in the New Testament is written in Greek, and nomos was what the word they used for Torah, which means law. So when you see law in the New Testament, think back to Torah teaching. Because if we see it as law, we can think, oh, this must be something I have to do right now, right? You can't break the law. And so when we think about the Old Testament, think about the Torah, the teaching. What is God trying to teach us in this? How do we deal with this in our lives? Because here's the thing. Who is God making this covenant with in Exodus 34? Is it with you? No. It's with the people of Israel. This is a covenant between him and them, not between him and you, right? So when we look at these teachings, we have to realize these are teachings for different people at a different time in a different place. So what do these teachings tell us? They tell us who God is. They tell us the type of God he is. They tell us about his character. They tell us that he wants relationship with us. See, we can sometimes weaponize some of these scriptures, right? My grandparents, I love my grandparents, and they were very faithful believers, but they were like, you cannot get a tattoo. Well, why? Because it says it in the Bible. Okay. Well, and what else did they say? Well, women can't wear pants because it says, you know, women shouldn't dress like men. I was like, really? Why not wear pants? Because it says it in the Bible. See, here's the thing, though, is they like shellfish. And if I were braver, I would have said, well, well, then why do you eat shellfish? It says that we're not supposed to eat shellfish in here. Oh, that doesn't apply, right? And so we kind of pick and choose the things we want to apply, you know, in an unwise way. These scriptures in the Old Testament do have words that are important for us to wrestle with because it shows us who God is. But we have to be careful in just saying, oh, he's saying that to the people of Israel. That must mean he's saying it to me. God wants to grow our wisdom in understanding who he is. We see this faith journey throughout scripture and throughout the last 2,000 years. What does it mean to be faithful? That's the question all of us has to ask as we look at who God reveals himself to be in these scriptures. What does it mean for us to be faithful? And if we were to take these 600 things, these different teachings in the Old Testament, we see again and again God coming back to wanting relationship with his people and wanting them to be faithful and to act justly. And we see Jesus himself. He is asked in Matthew 22, 36, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So out of these 600 things, what should I follow. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, so all the Torah and the prophets hang on these two commandments. They give us a filter. They give us a summary. Jesus here is summarizing, love God and love your neighbor. Be faithful to me and act justly. Love others as yourself. This is what we learn about God in the Torah, these important things that we're supposed to be living under. So God worked through Israel 
He was establishing the kind of God he was, that he was a God who was compassionate, who was gracious, who wanted covenant with his people, who wanted to, to, to bless all nations through them. We learn about this God. So when Jesus shows up and he says, I am the son of God, they will know it's not the Greek God he's talking about. It's not the Roman God that he's talking about. It's not the Egyptian God. This is Yahweh. This is who he is representing. We know there's a difference with this God. So we can step into that culture in the first century Middle East, pointing to the Yahweh that they have come to know. And this is what Jesus does. We're going to have this meal in a, in a moment. But he comes to that last supper with his disciples. And he took bread and he gave thanks. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup saying, this is the cup of the what? The new covenant, which is poured out for you. This is what Jesus is doing in that meal. He's saying, you know what? You know about the old covenants. Now I am doing something new here with you. And he says, he points forward, he points backwards to this old covenant, and he points forward that his blood will be poured out. Why blood? You know, I think if Jesus came back today, he probably wouldn't need to use blood. It, we think of this like sacrificing animals. What is this about, right? But back in Exodus, we see that Moses took some of the blood and he sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant. You use blood to seal a covenant, to ratify an agreement, to say this is now official, right? Here we might use a chop, right? Then it was blood. So Jesus is saying, actually, I'm going to ratify a new agreement with you with my blood. And he says it's going to be poured out. We see in Isaiah 53, 12. Isaiah in the Old Testament is predicting the Messiah. He's speaking about who this Messiah is going to be. And he says this Messiah is going to pour out his life. Jesus says, I'm going to pour out my blood for you to make this new covenant. What is this new covenant that we get to be a part of that does apply to us? One, it means salvation. It means forgiveness of sins. It means relationship with God as an individual and as a community. It means we can have communion with God, the author of life, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We can know him. We can have relationship with him because of who he is and what he has done. That through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can be transformed to be a blessing to everybody, to all nations, to all people as we love God and as we love others. That is good news, church family. I'll have people and have had people over the years say, maybe I'm on a generational, under a generational curse. Maybe I'm being punished because of the things my parents did. And let me say, no, God is not punishing you because of those things. We get this wonderful word back to Ezekiel 
where God says each one is accountable themselves, but he also says, for the one who did turn away, right? The one who did leave me. He says, if a wicked man turns away from all his sins he has committed and keeps all my decrees and does what is just and right, he will surely live. He will not die. I will remember no longer the sins against him. So even if we are walking in sin, God says, turn away from those things and turn towards me and have life. Be forgiven. I want relationship with you. We can remember that God is compassionate, that he is gracious, that he is slow to anger. That he forgives what we bring to him. We're going to take this meal in two parts today. Um, the first with the bread, and after we take the bread, don't, don't unseal the cup yet, because if you're like me, you might spill it. Um, so to get the bread ready, and after we take the bread, we're going to, to have a song of worship. So we remember that, that Jesus was sitting around that table. He's telling his disciples about what's going to happen. He breaks the bread. said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat, church. God, we thank you that you offer us this table, that we can't provide this meal for ourselves. We can't make this meal, God. But you are generous with who you are. You are generous with your life with us. God, we bring our surrender to you today, and we invite you in to forgive whatever might be on our heart, God. Bring us to faith in you, Jesus, we pray. May you do a work in us.
later in the meal, Jesus picked up the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. Pour it out with his blood. Church, take and drink. Jesus, we thank you that you are a God of forgiveness. You are a God of compassion. You are slow to anger and you love us with a steadfast love. God, thank you that you you are a God we can come to with questions, with frustrations, with doubts, with worries. And you meet us in this place. You meet us afresh. God, meet us again afresh today, I pray.